This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Far between sundown's finish and midnight's broken toll, we ducked inside the doorway, thunder crashing. As majestic bells of bolts stuck shadows in the sounds, seeming to be the chimes of freedom flashing. Flashing for the warriors whose strength is not to fight, flashing for the refugees on the unarmed road of flight, and for each and every underdog soldier in the night, and we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me to talk about Chimes of Freedom from 1964's Another Side of Bob Dylan is fellow Bobcat, Micah Alpaw. Hi, Micah. Hey, Rob. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I'm, uh, uh, as I said off air, I'm a little intimidated because this song is is huge. This is like <laughs> this is a huge Huge song, not necessarily in its, I mean, like blown in the wind, times are changing. We've done those, tanging up in blue, but just this song itself to me is, is a, um, a big bite to take out of the Dylan songbook. So I'm, I'm really curious to find out why you wanted to talk about it. But of course, since you haven't been on the show before, we have to start at the beginning, which is how did you become a fan of Bob in the first place? Well, my mom had been a first-generation Bob Dylan fan. She graduated high school in 1966, and in 1974, she later told me she'd been the first row of the reunion tour with the band at the Great Western Forum uh, near Los Angeles. Um, she remembered his uh, sparkling blue eyes, she said. <laughs> she, had, she even said that her favorite Bob Dylan album was Before the Flood, um, and I've never met another Bob Dylan fan uh, who has said that. <laughs> but... She never played any of those albums for me. I was looking through her record collection in more recent years, and she did have well-worn copies of the early albums, but she also had a unopened copy of Empire Burlesque, which would have come out when I was three and a half years old. Um, I actually first started to become a Bob Dylan fan when I was visiting my ultra-conservative grandparents. We'd gone to a Stanford-Notre Dame game in Palo Alto in the fall of 97. Um, and just by chance that evening, we happened upon, I think it was on CBS, um, a Kennedy Center tribute to Bob Dylan. And I was really transfixed by Bruce Springsteen's version of Times There Are a Changing. Mm. So some weeks after that, I went out and found a used copy of Greatest Hits, Volume 1. I enjoyed that song, like Mr. Tambourine Man. Uh, I'd already been exposed to that, I suppose, through the, the Dangerous Minds movie. But I was slow to get in the rest of it. <laughs> um, indeed, I still don't think that that set of songs works particularly well together, uh, really jumps around. Um, oddly, it was only after I joined the Columbia House Music Club in the fall of 1999. Those of us of a certain age can remember 12 CDs for a penny with nothing more to buy ever. You know, yeah, right. But um, <laughs> read the fine print. <laughs> precisely. But as one of those 12 CDs, I did pick out Highway 61 Revisit. And even though I would have heard like a Rolling Stone on volume one, um, now it became, as you know, Bruce Springsteen put it, um, like someone kicking open the door to your brain. Um, and it was the, the fall of my senior year in high school and working an after school job. Um, but 
both via Columbia House and some of the nice price CDs within a year, I acquired basically the entire Dylan um, back catalog. So Dylan really became a pivotal figure at a crossroads moment in my life. I'd really been an average to below average high school student. Um, But um, alongside other factors, he really made me start to get ambitious uh, to go out and write and create, and particularly the 1965 to 66 Dylan. Um, and I was lucky that Live 1966 had come out less than two years earlier. Um, really became a useful alter ego for me to reject mediocrity, you know, follow my muse, and be willing to define myself against my environment, you know, sometimes in almost uh, uncomfortable ways. Um, so my infatuation with Dylan really continued on through my college years. Some of my uh, former roommates still uh, give me crap for how much I played uh, Bob Dylan C- CDs in the <laughs> dorm rooms and in our early apartments. But <laughs> um, I'll, I'll always be grateful to Dylan for helping uh, turn me um, to a, a more creative path, perhaps. Well, that's interesting. Uh, in terms of the creativity, I'm sort of fascinated by that. How do you feel like it inspired you? Was it the way he approached his creative work? Was it the work itself? Was it, or was it, was it all those things kind of combined? If there was, if there's any way to sort of track that? It's hard to say exactly. I mean, nothing that I've ever produced has even slightly mirrored anything that Bob Dylan, you know, ever did pretty much. I tried to play the guitar for a, a few weeks um, as an <laughs> undergraduate student, but never went anywhere with it. I don't know. It was, it was his uh, incisiveness and, um, you know, willingness to to stand up and say the unpopular thing. Um, and just kind of the, the persona that he was able to create around himself in his most critical period that um, just spoke to me somehow but yeah it was never anything too concrete gotcha gotcha the reason i asked that is because i think about how i would say i have something similar and the way i was inspired by him was when i was learning sort of developing my illustration style and wanting to become a, a freelance artist i just created tons and tons of work just to get good at what i was doing and i didn't worry if the finished piece was perfect I just kind of had an inspiration and did it and then moved on to the next piece. And I felt like that was Bob's inspiration uh, in there of the, the, you know, this idea of like this guy creates so much and a lot of it, he leaves by the side of the road or we never hear it, but he's always, you know, he's not trying to get perfect by doing nine songs and moving on. He's doing like 50 songs and moving on. And I always thought that was a, it was just like huge inspiration of just not really worrying about whether the final product is perfect. It's more about the journey to get there. Yeah, I definitely think with my own more recent academic work, that's been the the case as well. I mean, academic history is something that tends to extend over almost inhuman timescales. It's (laughs) considered quick if you can churn out a book every eight or nine years or something like that. But I've exceeded that total. And I think at least part of the reason has been almost the experimental process that you can glimpse through some of the bootleg series. And like you said, just the incredible body of work that he uh, turned out, including sometimes in fairly short periods of time. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Um, so I, I do want to ask you about the, the Kennedy Center Honors thing, because I remember watching that when it aired. I, I knew it was coming and I was so excited. But I'm sort of fascinated as to what a, a person coming to him knew would feel about that, because obviously, other than the clips they play, he's not performing. He's just up in the balcony. And I want, can you remember what your feelings were about that? Because like, 
he had he's really scruffy looking, right? In there, he looks like he hadn't combed his hair or taken a shave, and yet he's wearing like a tux, and he's there with his mom, and he has these cut. They keep cutting back to him, and he has these just weird facial reactions to what's going on. Meanwhile, all these people, Bruce Springsteen and uh, Gregory Peck. Is saying these amazing things about him, and you have to cut to him, and he just is. He's got that thing where he like lifts his head up a little, and he looks odd. Like, do you remember what your reaction was? You're like, what? <laughs> this guy's a this guy's kind of a weird dude. I really should go back and rewatch it. I admit that I haven't. Um, remember, my grandfather kept commenting on how ugly he was, um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. but that that almost made it <laughs> better in a way. That you know, it was this <laughs> strange little guy who had produced all of these uh, incredible songs. <laughs> Jeez, thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my goodness. So, have you seen him live? Yeah, yeah. I have seen him live uh, 18 times. Oh, and uh, right. with any luck, on um, October the 1st, we'll be at the Midland Theater in Kansas City for the opening night of the fall 2023 leg as well. Very um, nice. Yeah, and it, it's really been, you know, an, an interesting journey in that uh, the first 16 shows were all in different cities um, and all 18. With the exception of, well, this 19th will be in a venue I've already seen him in. But up until then, it had always been somewhere new. And the never-ending tour, in some ways, kind of felt like it mirrored my own life from undergrad to grad school to early career one-year jobs to, you know, being, uh, I wouldn't quite say stuck in a place for a long time, but certainly winding up in a place that wouldn't have been my, my initial first choice, you know, condemned to drift or else be kept from drifting as, uh, <laughs> chimes there, our freedom would put it. Eh. Um, but many of the shows were absolutely wonderful. The first one was just a few months after I got into listening to him in, March of 2000, me and three other friends, only one of whom had been a Dylan fan before, drove over the grapevine from L.A. to Bakersfield and saw him play um, a show for mostly a country music crowd. Asleep at the Wheel was opening and most of the crowd seemed to be there for them. But mm. Dylan was wonderful. I mean, he really had uh, creative new versions of uh, a lot of the, the classic older songs. Um, it was still relatively close to Time Out of Mind, so that seemed new and fresh as well. And it's always been something I've enjoyed, you know, going back to uh, once every year or so. Um, and the songs always do struck me in at least kind of uh, a, a, a different way. Um, I, I mentioned before we started the show that I did have an encounter with him once. Oh, so man, was, I can't wait. <laughs> it was October of 2016 um, of all the, the moments in human history. I drove down from Kansas City to Tulsa um, for a, a Sunday evening show, and I left a few hours early, thinking that since the Woody Guthrie Center was already there, they'd sure. announced the Bob Dylan Center, but it still hadn't been uh, put together yet. Um, I get there about three, look around the museum, and they'd be close enough for a seven or eight o'clock show. But the Guthrie Museum was closed for a fundraiser. So um, I'm left wandering around the somewhat small Tulsa Arts District for five hours uh, until yeah, it's the just concert. a couple of streets. There's not a whole ton there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really not. And of course, it was Sundays that downtown was all closed up too. But anyway, I'm wandering, wandering by what was then the uh, Brady Theater, now the Tulsa Theater. And there's this giant um, back, uh, black um, van that's uh, pulling up against the stage door. And there's this kid with a crew cut 
um, a guitar and a harmonica on a harmonica holder, playing his hearts out um, for uh, whoever is inside of the the um, van. I still didn't think that it was going to be Dylan. I came up thinking that maybe I'd get to see some members of the band or see some uh, bases or you know other equipment unloaded. Um, but then uh, while the kid's playing right in front of it, um, Dylan steps up to the, the, the highest step, you know, for, for getting in or, or coming out of a thing. And he just stands there absolutely impassively for 30 or 45 seconds <laughs> um, listening to the kid play. I think I managed to say, hey, but uh, he didn't say anything back. Um, oh, well. <laughs> But then um, after his security guard comes down in front of him, he gets out, goes back um, into the theater, and he invites the kid to come back uh, stage with him. And a couple of minutes later, the kid then comes back out completely overcome, saying that uh, Bob Dylan gave him a new harmonica and told oh him to be writing songs. God! <laughs> oh, my God! Wow, I wonder who that kid is. <laughs> it's J- turned out to be Jason Isbell or something. That's uh, that is stunning. He must have been he must have been in tears when he told you that. He was, he was, and it was seven years ago. Maybe he does have a recording contract now. I didn't get his name. Wow. Oh my god, that is amazing. <laughs> oh my god, that is that. I mean, if you had, if I had that story in my back pocket, I would be telling that. For the re- every other day for the rest of my life, you know, people will be like, I know already. I tell you, know, like, that's amazing. Oh my God. So yeah, you were just, so you just sort of like stared at him for like the 45 seconds he was standing there. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, what else can you do? I mean, you're yeah, these- used to it. <laughs> he had on these big aviator sunglasses that made him look more like, you know, stereotypical Bob Dylan than anything else, but in this drab army uh, coat. Um, over the top, like he was going to try and go out incognito or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was clearly playing his role, but playing it well. That's fant- that is fantastic. I I'm so jealous of everyone who's been on the show who tells me these stories because they've all been quite positive. Maybe if somebody had a bad experience, they wouldn't even bother to tell me. But all the ones I've been hearing about, they're they're at the very least interesting. They may not be you know, terribly interactive or whatever, but at least they're not negative. I'm like, oh, cool. They're, oh, look, he's being nice to this other kid or whatever. That's so, oh, man. I mean, I, you know, I go on and on about how amazing it is to be in the, in the hall with him when you see him live. Cause it's like, well, there's the, there's the guy. He's just standing right there. But to I sort of see him in a more regular, normal, mundane context, that's just, that's so cool. Yeah, it was good to see him being good as well as great. <laughs> oh, man. How fast. Did you tell the the next person you saw about that? Like when you when you had that experience, you like run back to your hotel or something. I mean, I'd be like, I have to tell somebody in case I get hit by a bus. <laughs> I did manage to get a picture of him as he was walking away back into the theater. Um, actually, it didn't get very many Facebook likes. I mean, there are a few of us, of course, who absolutely love these stories and every detail about Dylan. Um, I'm not sure it quite hits the general public the same way, however. <laughs> that is so cool. That is congratulations. That is so I would kill. For that experience. I mean, I'm never wandering around the halls. So, I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. I'll never really have that opportunity or something, but that is, that's fantastic. That is so cool. That is really, really cool. And of course, you know, by the time you saw him live for the first time, you said you already bought all the records. So you kind of knew what you were getting into going in. You know, you knew what the live shows sounded like 
when you were about to see him, what he sounded like currently. It wasn't like you were getting in there and being like, whoa, wait a minute, is this what this is? Well, I hadn't heard any recordings of the NeverEnding Tour up to that point. I was about three months in, so I probably had about a third of the records or so. So I had a, a pretty good feeling for the songs that I was going to hear, but not how I was going to hear them. Okay. Um, and, you know, even in more recent shows, there's always something that's a surprise, always something that's different from what he's done before. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, uh, well, that's, that is, uh, that is fantastic. So, all right. Well, let's, let's talk about Chimes of Freedom, Micah. I mean, uh, why this one? It's a gorgeous song. Uh, it's a, a fascinating hinge between Dylan's protest song era on the one hand and his, you know, psychedelic and especially personal explorations that were still to come. Um, captures something of the history of democracy. Um, <sighs> captures something of the era right after the Kennedy assassination. And you could say portends quite a lot about the shape of the 1960s to come. And it's also probably a visionary song for a vision he didn't wind up pursuing as a muse of movements. It, what do you mean by that? Well, it's still a song that's appealing to his past audience in a lot of ways. If you look at a lot of the verses, it fits in pretty well with kind of the Pete Seeger style anti-McCarthyite. Um, crowd. He's still hedging his bets as he's going into more personal songs otherwise on another side of Bob Dylan. Um, and of course, he's distancing himself in some measure from SNCC and a lot of the civil rights work that he'd been doing. Yeah, I, I could. I mean, this song is definitely a, you know, a, a hard turn in a specific kind of direction. I mean, he'd certainly in all his previous work, he had used you know, uh, been abstract and used metaphor and used illusions and things like that. But this is really kind of a whole nother level in terms of where he's going with this. Um, I will say this is a song that I feel like should be in terms of its inherent lyrical quality and the vision that it presents and how it puts that vision across. I think this song should be like a top 10 Dylan song. It should be in that pantheon. But I don't think that it is because I have never quite cottoned to this performance on another side of Bob Dylan. Um, and I will, we'll get into it. We'll get into covers and, and things like that in later versions, obviously. But to me, this song, and it may just be my, just my, my personal feelings about how I like to hear songs. I generally prefer songs to be up tempo. Like, I think I'm the only person I know that likes the fast forever young more than the slow forever young. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, like, lyrically, this song, I think, and, and we'll get to it shortly. I think the, this song contains one of his greatest verses in all of his songs, period. Like, one of the, you know, if you could boil it down to say, what are like his 10 greatest single verses out of any given song? This is up there. But I find the performance on another side to be kind of turgid, like, just, it's just it, the tune is just so barely there. It's just this kind of him jinga 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 jinga, and I wish that he had. You know, eventually he gets to kind of an up tempo version, and though that to me works much better. But these early ones, the live ones, I just lyrically I'm there, but the the tune to me is just kind of not that interesting. And I think that's what in my mind works against it a little is that it just isn't. I hate to say it like catchy. Not that all songs need to be, but like blown in the wind. I mean, you know, we stole, we, you know, we stole that tune or whatever, but that has a great melody on top of these amazing transformative lyrics. And this song has like half of that. I don't know. Do you agree with that? 
I think there's a beautiful quality to his voice and how he sings it on the record. And I admit I like that version better than some of the up-tempo versions that he's done in more recent years. I think the notorious uh, Bill Clinton inauguration <laughs> performance probably takes the up-tempo uh, to, to the absolute max. Um, <laughs> as we also might wind up discussing, he did originally write this as poetry. Um, right. You know, you can see the the, the first version at the, the, the Tulsa Museum now. Right. Um, so I think it works pretty well for for what, you know, it probably is. Um, maybe better than a lot of the other minimally arranged songs on another side. Yeah. I mean, except I, I always have my, my beef with another side, knowing that he recorded it all in one night which just gives you the impression of, well, he was kind of rushing through it a little bit. And I wish that he had said, let's do this over two nights. Maybe I can do this a little better. Maybe I can come up with something a little more interesting, but he, you know, he went into it saying, no, 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 I'm not leaving until the album is finished. Well, okay. Um, I, 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 I can remember, uh, you know, we'll talk about it later, but man, that, that Clinton inaugural version is, is something else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, the, the song, one of the things I like about it so much is, it starts to tell a story, you know, it sets the tone of the, the people in the, on the, you know, in the city and in the second verse in the city's melted furnace, unexpectedly we watched with phases hidden while the walls were taken. Like it's starting to tell a story, but mm-hmm. then it expands out from there. And one of the things I love about it is that it reminds me a bit of series of dreams, which I've said a million times is my all time favorite Bob Dylan song. And that it, it's presenting little flashes of insight that our narrator is getting and they're not hanging around long enough to be really fully understood or even really perceived as to what the narrator is seeing. But there are these chains of images that are just going by really fast and they're leaving various levels of impression. And you're kind of like, wait, what's, what's that? And then you're moving on to the next thing. And I find that style to be really interesting. And that this song has that. Uh, and the idea of that it's, it's presenting these little, we're seeing these little glimpses of people or moments. And I find that really, really interesting. So I said lyrically, uh, yeah, it is, it is all there. It's almost a little too much. I don't know if you agree with that. Like there's parts of the song where I'm like, I, I'm, I'm lost as to where he's, what he's even talking about in terms of the, the way the words kind of fit together or don't fit together. But as we'll get to again, it, I, to me, it ends with one of the great, Dylan verses of all time. So it has that, it's a story song, but then not really. Yeah, um, absolutely uh, agree. I think part of the reason that it's oftentimes not ranked higher in the upper pantheon is that it is seemingly so unapproachable that you have these huge images that do strike you, but trying to put it all uh, to, together certainly is a major task. Yeah, I mean, with faces hit, with faces hidden while the walls were tightening. I mean, that, what? You know, gorgeous. Like, gorgeous for you to say, huh? And there's the echo of the wedding bells before the blow and rain dissolved into the bells of the lightning, toiling for the rebel, toiling for the rake, toiling for the luckless, the abandoned and forsake, toiling for the outcast, burning constantly at stake. And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. And it, it's kind of what you were talking about that it seems to be chronicling all of social injustice through all of human history. I mean, you know, the, the, the line about the burning constantly at stake can be a metaphor, but it can also be literal burning constantly. Like the, the, the people who were burned at the stake falsely, 
You know, they, they were the outcasts burning constantly. And it, I love that he's got that in there. So yeah, it seems to inco- incorporate, you know, a thousand, two thousand years of human history in like six minutes. Agreed. And also for the modern history of democracy, it borrows a lot of rhetoric from the 18th century where it was common to talk about revolution, especially as being um, a, a tempest or a volcano or an earthquake or some other, you know, grand convulsion of the earth. Also seems to borrow a lot from the romantic era as well, particularly the notion of the sublime um, that, you know, what, what people really chase is what's, you know, beautiful enough to destroy you. And, uh, yeah, yeah, really um, captures an incredible number of of themes and seems especially drawn to the dissidents. Uh, when you got when you first heard the song, was it was it the another side version? I mean, he's only he's not done it live all that much. Again, we'll get into that. And it has never appeared on like a greatest hits record. It's not on any of his you know any of his compilations. Again, it's it's a song that I I feel like deserves more play. And I think there's something to the fact that at the Bob Dylan Center. It is one of the six songs that gets an installation all to itself at the center. I, you know, I don't know who exactly made those choices. I'm sure Dylan himself had a, a lot to do with it, but I always thought that was very instructive that this song gets, you know, on, on ahead of a thousand other more famous songs. This one gets its own, you know, section, uh, prime real estate in the Bob Dylan Center. Yeah. Um, it's curious that Dylan himself moved on from it so quickly. Uh, just a few live performances in 1964 and then not again until 1987. Um, I mean, I think, you know, his career was moving in such a different direction that, you know, no longer was a, a useful song to him once he got into, you know, 65 and certainly um, 66. But uh, there, there certainly is a, a lot to go back to there. Yeah, because it said it's, it's, yeah, it's social justice. And as you we were talking about, like he kind of moved away from that a little, but he also really didn't. I mean, it, you know, his songs, his later songs as, as he's moving on are more about personal freedom, but that's, that's here too. You know, the, the sense of personal freedom. And yeah, again, he's talking about grander topics, but he also is talking about, you know, I, the person in the song, uh, the narrator, I feel is getting some sort of, grand awakening i don't know if you if that's your read on it but it's like the the narrator is seeing is being presented something that they hadn't seen before and they're getting insights into something they had never fully perceived and that's you know that that's the personal waking and that feels like you know thematically similar to the stuff he's talking about on highway 61 or blonde on blonde or john wesley harding absolutely i think this really is an important transition point from kind of the uh older left, you know, music that he had been playing up to now um, until where he was going in 65 and 66. I mean, really, there's a lot, uh, you know, missing as far as from the themes that he'd been playing just a a few months earlier. Um, No mention of race in the song, Mm -hmm. only two mentions of gender, and that's limited to uh, a prostitute, mistitled prostitute, perhaps, um, and uh, a a mateless mother. Um, a skeptic could say that this is the the, the white male um, vision of of freedom, um, but nevertheless, uh, of course, you know, crisscrossing all all sorts of different groups and situations. I forget which live version I listened to. Uh, I think it's in, I, again. I forget which one of the bootleg series. But there's this point where he's playing it live, and he ta- he's he's strumming in between the verses, and he takes way too long. 
in between verses, there's a point where you're like, okay, he just keeps jugga, jugga, jugga. And I almost think, did he forget what the next line is? Because <laughs> this song is so lyrically dense and because it doesn't really tell any sort of linear story, uh, I'm guessing it's easy to lose your place in it. Because it is just such a word salad. Again, I don't mean that in a nasty way, but it is, it's a complex song and it's not like Tangled Up in Blue where you're like, okay, I remember Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. I know where I'm going in this song. This is just, you know, try to remember in your brain through the mad mystic hammering of the wild ripping hail. I mean, that, that is not a phrase that just naturally rolls off your tongue. Yeah, I have a one-year-old at home and have actually sung far more Bob Dylan out loud in the last year than I ever had before. (laughs) And even in preparing for this episode, I could not uh, get through singing the entirety of Times of Freedom. I usually (laughs) stick to Desolation Row and Mr. Tambourine Man and a few other things. You sing Desolation Row? Oh, yeah. To your child? She likes it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. She's all right. That's uh, you got to keep an eye on the kid. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it's got a lulling quality to it, and importantly, it has a lot of words. So you know, when it takes longer to get her to sleep, that oftentimes does the trick. <laughs> what are postcards from the hanging, Daddy? I don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll explain that later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we got the sky cracked its poems in naked wonder that the clinging of the church bells blew far into the breeze, leaving only bells of lightning and its thunder. Striking for the gentle, striking for the kind, striking for the guardians and protectors of the mind and the unpawned painter behind, beyond his rightful time. And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. It occurred to me when I was listening to it again today, when here's the line about the painter beyond, behind his rightful time, right? Mm-hmm. And I realized that like, when you say someone is behind their rightful time, that is the same thing as saying they're ahead of their time, really. It's the same concept because you're in, if you're saying someone is behind their rightful time, it means that the place they belong in is far off in the future and that's not where they are. Well, that's the same thing as saying you're ahead of your time because you're saying you are, you're doing something that the people that you live in currently don't appreciate. So it's, I realize it's kind of saying the same thing, even though you're using the exact opposite word to describe it. But I realize that's kind of what that means is like it's someone out of time. And I wonder if Bob himself felt that way thought that thought that of himself at this point in 1964 does he think i am so far different than anything else i'm hearing that i'm not part of my natural time as a folk singer it makes sense and certainly someone you know with such an imagination and ability to crisscross different historical eras and grab material um yeah i could see it yeah Through the wild cathedral evening, the rain unraveled tales for the disrobed faceless forms of no position that's another one of those lines where I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know where we are. I mean, are, do you have that? Do you have that feeling with some of these lines or is it just, it just goes by and it doesn't, it doesn't sort of stick out at you. It was like, all right, I don't know what that is. I mean, so much of it just rolls over you as you're listening to this. That's it's gorgeous language. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, bro- it's certainly broken apart, almost dismembered even, but you know, amidst the, you know, wild storm. I mean, if you can think of, you know, the, the, the rain pulling, you know, leaves and branches off the trees and just kind of breaking everything down as it goes, maybe, or maybe something else. <laughs> Are you familiar at all with, uh, people have, you know, said that this is inspired by the, the symbolist poetry of Arthur Rimbaud, who of course he's mentioned in, in another one of his songs. Are you familiar with any of that stuff at all? Cause my knowledge of poetry is, uh, I think I've read, 
two books of poetry, one by T.S. Eliot and one by frequent uh, show guest Jason M.D. Like, that's about it. <laughs> I know very little about poetry, so I can't bring any sort of that knowledge to this song. I, I read a volume of Rambo back in college 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, as an, as an historian, I don't do a whole lot of literary analysis myself, to be honest with you. What kind of, I, I want to get off the song, but what kind of historian are you? I'm fascinated by that. I broadly study the French Revolution, um, broader Atlantic revolutions of the 18th century. And now I'm writing a book on the history of protest and democracy from the 18th century down to the present day. Well, I would imagine the work of Bob Dylan will play into that at some point. <laughs> You'd think. I mean, he's such an individual figure that it's hard to, you know, write about him typifying necessarily this or that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he certainly informs a lot of it. I mean, again, this song is it's it's got that protesty feel to it, but it's so it's so nonspecific. It's not specific about an issue, as you mentioned. Like it doesn't he doesn't mention any buttons color. You know, other than the mistitled mm-hmm. prostitute, which again, that doesn't even necessarily mean it's a woman necessarily. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's generic. It's all just about anyone who's been victimized. And he's not even really even talking about at any point governments exactly, right? He's not really even getting into that. It's more about societal oppression, you know, however, whatever form that takes. I agree. Yeah, there's one uh, quote that I pulled out from his Tom Paine uh, dinner speech, which was only a couple months before he wrote this song, that there's no black and white left and right to me anymore. There's only up and down, and down is very close to the ground. And I'm trying to go up without thinking about anything as trivial as politics. They've got nothing to do with it. I'm thinking about the general people and when they get hurt. Right, yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's you're not getting caught up in the moment of this person or that person. It's more the generalized feeling of oppression, you know, of anyone oppressing anyone, anyone else for any other reason. Um, what do you think about this singer? I mean, again, you've got Bob Dylan sort of saying he feels empathy for anyone who is oppressed. That could, and I'm not saying that's what happens here, but that could fall a little bit into like kind of being a dilettante kind of thing, because Here's a guy who has, as far as we can understand, almost unparalleled freedom to speak for himself. I mean, he is not, I mean, yeah, he's, he's part of a, he's doing it for a record company that has some measure of control over what he could do. If they really wanted to say something out there, they could pull it. But for the most part, this is not a guy who's really having to deal with oppression, especially even being a, a, a straight white male in the early sixties. He's not dealing personally with oppression really much at all. Uh, and yet here he is showing kinship with everyone that's ever been oppressed. I mean, does that, sometimes that could come across as a little phony. Again, I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but it's, it's possible. Does that, did you get that? Any feelings like that? I mean, he was definitely on the razor's edge of what he could and couldn't get away with. And he definitely had, mm-hmm. had to deal with the blowback from the Tom Paine Society speech just mm-hmm. a couple months earlier. Um, indeed, to an extent, you know, maybe Times of Freedom was partially um, a, a limited apology, or at least trying to explain a bit better what he was trying to get at by, you know, saying that he could empathize with Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, That's rough. That is a yeah. rough thing to say in, <laughs> in December of 1963. I mean... Yeah, you wonder what he and James Baldwin were discussing um, during the (laughs) dinner meal beforehand. (laughs) (laughs) Guess what I'm going to, here's my notes, here's what I'm going to say. 
<laughs> Bob, don't, don't, uh, maybe not say that. Although I don't know if James Baldwin would have said that or not. James Baldwin <laughs> would have been like, all right, go ahead. You know, this will be fun. Uh, <laughs> supposedly there is a fragment of a poem that is the third verse of this song that was found in some notes of his that he wrote in late of 63. So, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, right on the heels of the Kennedy assassination. And I mean, obviously it's on his mind. It was on everyone's mind. It couldn't be anything, but, but I got it still on his mind. You know, in 20, 2020, he's still yeah. thinking about it. He's still writing um, songs about it. And it's interesting that this song is sort of the opposite of that. I mean, it's like it's the country's going through the, the worst convulsion it's gone through since the Civil War. And here he is writing this incredibly upbeat song about potential societal change. You, it's, it's interesting that he would come to this just a couple of months after what I think a lot of people could say, good Lord, this country's over. Like we're doomed now that this has happened. It was a really, you know, pivotal moment in all sorts of things. I mean, you're getting the, the rise of LBJ's great society. Johnson's able to get all of this ambitious social legislation through largely because of the Kennedy assassination. Um, he was able right. to pull votes that Kennedy hadn't been able to just a few months before this is just a few months before Freedom Summer, the civil rights movement's coming you know, to its peak. The Civil Rights Act's going to be in the summer of 1964. Voting Rights Act's going to follow in 1965. So, I mean, you can feel the, the energy of everything that's going on around him at this moment. And yet he's pulling out from conventional participation and all of that. Um, maybe a little earlier than he should have. I mean, it's you know hard to imagine he wouldn't stick around for Freedom Summer at least. But mm -hmm. uh, of course, he he goes in a very different direction. Yeah. Um. So you get the penultimate verse. He says, "Even though a cloud white clouds white curtain in the far off corner flashed, as the hypnotic splattered mist was slowly lifting, electric lights still struck like arrows fired before the ones condemned to drift or else be kept from drifting." And then 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 I feel like he's it's really starting to. He's starting to hone the point here, toiling for the searching ones on their speechless seeking trail for the lonesome hearted lovers with too personal a tale and for each unharmful, gentle soul misplaced inside a jail. And we gaze into the chimes of freedom flashing the line about the lonesome hearted lovers with too personal a tale that I feel like he conjures so much with just a simple line. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about that. I feel like the song is showing you flashes of different stories, maybe even different, if you want to get like sci-fi with it, like different dimensions. Mm -hmm. We're seeing little bits, but I love this idea of we're seeing a brief glimpse of these lovers and whatever their story is, it's not for us to know about. We're seeing a glimpse of it. The narrator is seeing a, a momentary fragment of these two people, but it is not for us to know. And we have to just see it and move on to the next thing. There's just, I find that the, 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 the beauty of the understatement there, you know, like it's just, Oh, it's this lovers with two. It's like kind of like if you're somewhere and you see two people interacting and you feel like you see them in a moment that you probably aren't meant to see, you know, uh, whether it be positive or negative, but you're just seeing like an interaction between them that a stranger probably wouldn't normally see otherwise. But man, that line has always haunted me. The, the lovers with two personal a tale. I love that. He's like, he's bringing it up just to not bring it up. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he goes on and tells too personal a tale with Ballad of Flame D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, Bob, that's the thing. This, song, this whole record, I go on and on about this record is just such a weird 
the highest highs and the lowest lows on this record. He's got these classics, got this song on, it's got It Ain't Me Babe on it, it's got My Back Pages, and then you've got Bowed and Plain Dick. <laughs> you know, and, and motorcycle nightmare where he's goofing around. It's just like it's crazy. But the um and each unharmful gentle soul misplaced inside a jail. I mean, that is just again, what a just what a powerful line. And of course, coming on the heels of all the civil rights work that was going on at this time. I mean, that that's it's a perfect line if you want to place it in that context, and you're not wrong, but it's it's so non-specific that you can apply it to anything, but it's if you're one of the, you know, the freedom riders or you're down in Mississippi trying to sign up uh, voters, uh, you know, that line is just that's again, it's like a lightning uh, lightning rod. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Captures the moment. Agreed. So and then he gets to the final verse, which. Well, let me let me, let me read it. It's a starry eyed and laughing. As I recall, when we were caught trapped by no track of ours for they hang suspended. That's a line that I'm like, what? What? Um, but then we listened one last time. And we watched with one last look, spellbound and swallowed till the toiling ended. So you've got these people watching this, you know, whatever is happening. And it's it seems like it's wrapping up. And then you've got these four lines toiling for the aching ones whose wounds cannot be nursed for the countless confused, accused, misused, strung out ones and worse. And for every hung up person in the whole wide universe. And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. I think those four lines are, like I said, I think among the single four greatest lines he's ever written. Every time we get to this part of the song, no matter what version I listen to, fast, slow, I I am never failed to be stirred by those four lines. I think that is just like peerless in his, in his uh, song, (laughs) in his discography. I agree. If you look at his other mid sixties work, he usually isn't very kind to uh, the, the, the strung out people of the world. But um, yeah, it, it it captures it. I mean, I'm a sucker for internal rhymes. I always love when he does that, when he doesn't just end the line with the rhyme. It's got the you know, internal. So you've got confused, accused, misused, which is just, you know, I, fantastic. But I love that it's this song is so kind of highfalutin in its language. You know, we talk about that. It's you know, he's borrowing from in some ways like Arthur Rimbaud and other of the, the you know, the great poets. And yet you've got the line um, hung up person, which was absolutely a 60s phrase. Like that's a contemporary way of referring to someone like they're hung up. That was that was a a thing of that time. And so he's got this modern colloquialism mixed in with this timeless, you know, uh, vision of the whole wide unit, you know, a hung up person. But they're in the whole wide universe. Everyone, everyone is included. Everyone who is under the thumb of somebody else or something else, whether you're confused, you're accused, you're misused, or as you say, they're strung out. Like they're, they're, they're caught up in a trap of their own making, you know, whether it's drugs or, or whatever other addictions you might want to consider. Uh, and I just, I find them like, I, I just look and say, this guy, this is just genius level writing that you could combine modern and hip, something you would hear from two people talking back and forth, like you're rapping back and forth. And then you've got in the whole wide universe. I just, I just like, un. I always wonder what does he feel when he writes lines like that? When he gets it out, right? He puts it down on paper. Does he just sit there and go, holy, holy shit. You know, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like what, 
it's and I mean the, the notes are there in the, in the Bob Dylan Center. It's just fascinating. But I just I am I every time again every time I listen to the song in preparation for this episode every time I I'm gearing up for it. I'm like oh man yeah for Bob Dylan song. Okay, let me ask you. I'm I'm talking on and on here. When you listen to Dylan songs, do you tend to find that there's like one verse that you like more than the others? Like there's one that you really grab onto. I mean, not the rest of the song could be great, but there's one, or do you, do you tend to not? It tends to vary. It definitely varies song by song. I find that different verses strike me with different force on different occasions. And certainly over the course of time, some things stick out to me. Some things that I used to really like don't appeal to me quite as much as they used to. But um, yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous ending. It really captures the, the universality of human struggle. Yeah. I mean, it said there aren't that many Dylan songs I can think of where to me, the final verse is the one that really kicks it for me. It's usually in the middle of the song or, you know, the second verse or whatever, but this, this, every time we build up to it, I just, oh man, this is, yes, yeah, the whole wide unit. It's everything. It's everything you can possibly want to convey in this song. And, and there it is. And it's just absolutely um, beautiful. Now, apparently he tried several takes. Uh, when he would do, when he did this for another side, none of them were completed. They broke down at all various levels. Um, we've never, I've never heard any alt versions from another side, at least. And, uh, and then the one on the record is the, the one he got full on. He did it straight through and he, he got it done. And as you mentioned, he has not done it live very much, only 56 times over the course of, you know, 60 years. And most of them are from 64, 65. And then, he leaves it alone for 23 years <laughs> and it takes uh, him playing with the Grateful Dead. Uh, all credit to the Grateful Dead for them saying, Hey, let's play some, some, some of the obscure stuff. Uh, I forgive them even for Joey, but I mean, they got him to do <laughs> chimes, chimes of freedom. And that's one of those things where I'm like, why I, the versions that uh, you can hear on YouTube where, where he's with the dead. I like those versions. And I'm like, why isn't this on Dylan and the dead on that record? It really should be. And so, Again, good, you know, good for them. He got him playing it again because it's an amazing song. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. I've I've heard that that a lot of the you know better material was left off. That I think Dylan got the final cut for the Dylan and the Dead choices, and yeah, it was a very personal selection. I actually have heard the song live. Uh, by the way, uh, I was at the Wills Fargo Center in Philadelphia. Show you might have been to. It's in your your backyard anyway. Um, yeah, November the nineteenth, twenty twelve. That's like the, almost the next to last one or the third. Yeah. Yeah. He did it. Yeah. That was, uh, he did the last time he ever did it was November 21st. So this was the third last time he ever did it. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. I don't, I don't have to look it up whether I was at that show or not. Um, I don't remember hearing this. I think I would have remembered, but I mean, I've seen him a lot. So I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it said he, he, he plays it with the dead. For a while, and then he drops it again, and it comes back in the mid two thousands, and then he said he drops it again until twenty twelve, except for a couple of special occasions, which we absolutely need to discuss. One, of course, is uh, the nineteen, <laughs> the uh, the nineteen ninety three, or would have been yeah ninety three January, yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton inaugural, decked out in a cowboy hat and a mauve sequined jacket uh he comes out and sings a for some people completely indecipherable version of it <laughs> where did you did you find that on youtube where did you first see that version 
Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen it on YouTube uh, a few times now. <laughs> Not the version that the Clintons wanted, but maybe the version that the Clintons served. Who knows? <laughs> they, they, I mean, they keep cutting back to Bill Clinton, and he looks like he's he's delighted. Uh, I mean, maybe he's just happy that Bob Dylan's there. I remember watching the inaugural live when it happened, and this is again, this is ninety three, so this is pre internet. I didn't know Bob was going to be there, and then mm-hmm. they they bring him out. I'm like, oh my god, Bob! You know, and I look. I, apparently the legend was that there was a um a sign language interpreter there doing you know signing for people and when they got to when they got to that song that woman was completely overwhelmed and she just wrote words and music with her hands because she couldn't understand what Bob was makes saying. sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you try and sign uh you know the mystic you know the city's melted furnace with faces hidden while the walls are tightening. You try and do that in sign language, for God's sakes. I I I know I'm you know, I'm in the tank for Bob. I like that version. <laughs> <laughs> and I love I love especially when he gets to the final verse and he kinda like looks up to the heavens. Like it's mm-hmm. really kind of cheesy, but I love it. He sings like you know in the whole wide universe. I, I I watch it again. I was like, oh man, I, I dig this. It's not I can't I can't really say it's like a great version, but I, I really enjoyed it. And again, up tempo. So I dug that one. As performance art, I definitely appreciate the performance. And I'm sure the Clintons wanted it to be this symbolic handing of the torch from the, you know, new left to, uh, you know, the, 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 the Clinton regime and the, you know, democratic reseizure of power. But, um, I don't know. I think it was an imperfect performance for an imperfect historical moment anyway. <laughs> Curiously, when I was, when I was researching this, um, I found a USA Today list of the top 10 uh, inauguration performances of all time. And this is on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it's, it's, a, oh, it's at least aged better than uh, Michael Jackson leading um, all the performers. And we all, the, we are the world. We are the children. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. That. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's, he generally didn't, put his name on political candidates a whole lot i mean he he, he talked with uh jimmy carter a little bit he associated with jimmy carter in a little bit but but i mean to actually show up at an inaugural that mm-hmm. was kind of a that's a big get that was genuinely uh surprising um so then he covers it again with joan osborne for the soundtrack to the nbc miniseries the 60s uh joan and i actually talked about that when when she was on the show a bunch of years ago uh, what do you think of that version? It was okay. It didn't strike me particularly strongly, um, to to be honest. Joan kind of seemed to slide into the the, the Joan Baez style of uh, mm. performance. Um, so I don't know. What are your thoughts? I like it. Again, it's up tempo, which I enjoy. Um, I think you can sort of hear, and I mean, I think she even admits it, like struggling to harmonize with him because it's so impossible to mm. harmonize with him because he doesn't give you any clue about what he's going to do. And again. It would probably be hard enough to harmonize with them on Blown in the Wind, let alone this thing, you know, where the the lines are so, uh, you know, involved. It is a little like it's a little like kind of clean for a Dylan performance. Like, I feel like the the, the tune is just kind of pushing it along. Um, so I like it. I don't I don't like, oh, my God, it's the greatest thing ever. But I, I do. I do like it. Um, covers wise, it's been covered a bunch of times. There was the Amnesty International record, which was all Dylan covers. And that album's named Chimes of Freedom. I mean, that takes its name from it. 
Um, I think we're probably both headed in the same direction in terms of what our favorite version of this is. Am I, am I wrong about that? I, I think we're headed to the same place. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you tell everybody what our, <laughs> our collective favorite version is? Bruce Springsteen, East Berlin, July the 18th, 1988. So he's playing for a crowd of 300,000 people. Bob Dylan actually had played in East Berlin in 1987, but his performance didn't get rave reviews. Um, But now, you know, Springsteen, at the height of his popularity, is there. He plays a four-hour concert, and right after Born in the USA, um, he goes into the intro of Chimes of Freedom. And um, he has written out on him in or written out on a piece of paper in front of him, I should say, in phonetic German, I am not for or against the government. I've come here to play rock and roll for you in the hope that one day all barriers will be torn down. Eh. And of course, this is uh, only a little over a year before the Berlin Wall ultimately uh, does um, get torn down. Eh. Um, It's hard to say exactly how direct of a relationship there was, but it's not too much of a stretch to say that this was a great, you know, inspirational moment. Um, supposedly the censors blotted out um, that portion of the live performance, but 300,000 people had been there. Um, so word got around pretty quick. It's a pretty stunning piece of video. You can see it on, on YouTube. Um, I never knew that, that uh, Springsteen had covered this, uh, but my, uh, my my roommate in art school and then later on we had an apartment together he's a massive springsteen fan and i mean i I love bruce springsteen but i wasn't i didn't know like the deep cuts the way he did and then he had the ep that springsteen put out called chimes of freedom where he plays this song and he talks about the tour that he's going on with sting and tracy chapman uh about the the you know the the, the freedom for the human rights act um and and I absolutely love that version. I love the way he does it. I love that the first whole verse is kind of done, you know, slow. And then when he gets to in the city's melted furnace, then it kicks in and then it's up tempo. And then we get to the end of it and he's, you know, and then he brings it down again near the, near the final lines. And then he kicks it back up again with the, the whole wide universe. And so I've always thought this is the version I want to hear from Bob, like this, this kind of approach, I don't want to just to borrow Springsteen's own take on it, but just to me, this song calls out for that kind of bigness, you know, and of course, Springsteen is the king of that, the king of the big, you know, big musical moment. And and so I've always sort of thought, well, this this is a masterpiece of a song that Bob himself in performance, I don't think is ever quite nailed down, but Springsteen did. Springsteen did. And so... Uh, I, I'm glad that version exists and I, I listened to it a bunch of times again and prep for this and God, that's fun. I just, it's so it's letter perfect. He gets all the words right. And I think the tune is wonderful. And again, it's to me, it, it's, it's worthy of this song. The moment is worthy of the song, the way he brings to it. it just, he, he kills it. I agree. It was the one time that this song really reached its anthemic potential. Yeah. Oh man. I absolutely, absolutely love it. And uh, I would have killed I can imagine hearing him in concert. I mean, he said you can watch a bunch of YouTube videos of him doing it. That, that shot of him, there's one point where he's t- playing in Berlin and it's over his shoulder and you see this sea of humanity. I mean, I just think about the nerve it takes to stand there and do this, to do anything, to stand there in front of and do anything in front of that massive a crowd. I mean, he's used to it, but 
it is. And then think about it, to sing a song that's not yours, right? And then sing a song as dense as this and to make sure you're kind of getting it right. And then, as you said, to, like to speak phonetically in German to do the intro. I mean, that's <laughs> pretty amazing stuff. Absolutely. Uh, it took a lot of courage to do. I mean, the, the East German regime was still totally intact in 1988. You had the, the, the Stasi and I'm, Obviously, it would have been a huge international incident, but I'm not sure he could have been absolutely sure that he wasn't going to get detained, at least for a while, for doing that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, bravo. <laughs> that would have been a hell of an international incident. We've detained Bruce Springsteen. It'd be like detaining America itself, you know, like it's, it's grabbing an eagle and wrapping it in a flag or something and holding it in a jail. I mean, good Lord, it's, it's Bruce Springsteen, like the ultimate musical uh, ambassador. But, yeah, this, so this song is – I. I I don't want to say it like it deserves better. It's not like it's some forgotten thing, but I just, I wish there was a performance of it by Bob and maybe there is, maybe there's a live version out there that someone's heard and went, Oh my God, this is it. He nailed it. But for the ones I've heard, they're just, he's close, but not quite. And so at least there's the Springsteen version. I mean, at least there's that, but uh I am happy. I was happy to see it get such attention at the Bob Dylan center because I think it deserves it. And it's probably a song that, Maybe the casual Dylan fan doesn't even really know, you know, as I mentioned, it's never been on a greatest hits collection. It's not, you know, even that giant Dylan box set that was every, that was like, you know, 30 years or 40 years of Dylan. It's not on there. Uh, it's, it's kind of just, it's, it's, you know, further down in the catalog, even though I think it's, it's a towering, uh, poetic achievement. I, I certainly agree. Um, you know, another side of Bob Dylan one of those albums that you know could have been you know so much better than than what it was i mean he already had uh mr tambourine man written as well right. so you know if you take a little more time left ballad of plain in plain d off put mr tambourine man on maybe <laughs> wait a few more months include uh gates of eden uh it's all right ma uh, etc um yeah it could have taking on a lot more finished forms. Um, I found a New Yorker article um, in which the, the, the writer was there that night. And supposedly the story was that Columbia had a false sales convention and they wanted the <laughs> album to pass out to their distributors. But as to why Dylan hadn't started the album uh, until then, I have no idea. You imagine that you imagine being like, you know, being a Columbia sales executive and pressuring Bob Dylan. We need a new album. Like, oh, What? Like what, you know, like what, or, you know, what is going on? But I guess, you know, the, the record company, it doesn't matter who you are. The record company gets its way, you know? And so Bob had to, de- had to deliver, although probably not exactly in the way that they envisioned. Uh, I think that Perhaps. was, is this the journalist that Nat Hentoff? Was that the musician? I think that might've been the one, the, the musician, the um journalist that was here that night that, that saw all that. Um, imagine again, in an era where nowadays artists take, months years to craft a record i mean just a couple of years later the beatles would take what however many months to create to create sergeant pepper and here's bob creating an entire record in a single night uh that's uh pretty pretty amazing even if you can sort of really rise at some of the song choices yeah the article mentioned that the producer hadn't heard or seen the lyrics to any of the songs beforehand <laughs> that this was dylan's choice and he was going to put on it what he felt like could you Showed picture this bit. Yeah. Could you picture this on side two of bringing it all back home? It feels like it's slightly of that piece of that these acoustic big songs that are metaphysical, somewhat direct, but also 
full of illusion. You know, I mean, again, this has got a little more social justice to it than the songs on bringing it all back home. But I don't know. I feel like I could, I could, I could sort of picture it on there. Sort of. I mean, I think you probably would have revised it a little bit for that. Um, Side two of bringing it all back home has a slightly harder edge to it. True. Somehow, but it's possible. Yeah. It probably couldn't literally fit it in. The songs are all so long on that side. I mean, there's, only, there's only four songs on that side. Like you could cram as much in uh, as he could get. So uh, also the, true. Yeah. I said, it's, it's just a massive achievement. It's just a massive, massive achievement. And again, I, I find that the whole wide universe, I'm just like, man, even if you just wrote that, that's like your, you know, that's your career is writing something that poetic and beautiful and simultaneously hip and cool. Um, just, just unbelievable. Maybe again, another reason why probably maybe didn't land the way some other songs did. It's as you mentioned, it's hard to sing along to. You know, mm-hmm. it's even Desolation Row, as you mentioned, it's got a kind of a, a sing songy sway to it. This does not have that. And maybe again, it just it and because it is so dense, it's not going to be blown in the wind. It's not going to be times that are changing, which are easy to follow and easy to sing in sort of a crowd setting in a kind of we shall overcome sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And a seven-minute song, you know, back That's in the era before uh, <laughs> um, all of his later longer ones. <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's one thing to sing two and a half minutes for "Blown in the Wind." Another thing to sing this song for seven minutes, you know, whatever. So, um, but yeah, it's it's an amazing piece. Uh, and again, I've always been a little intimidated to tackle it on the show, but uh, here we are. So uh, that's Chimes of Freedom. So thank you, Micah. Well, thank you, Rob. Pleasure being with you. <laughs> So, of course, we have to ask you a standard exit question, which, since you're on the show for the first time, I will say, what uh, if, what album what or what recording session of Bob Dylan's, if you could sit in on and just be a fly on the wall for, what would it be? It probably would have to be Blonde on Blonde. That's always been the most mysterious album, and also the one that he you know, seemed to have to scramble to, to, to get together at the, the last moment and um, try and get the, the, the session museum or session musicians on the same page. Um, and just the, the quality of the lyrics and seeing all of that being created in front of you, I think, would have been incredible. You get to see the band there as well at times. Like, that's fun, you know? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, that would be an amazing. And you'd probably get to see him at his, like, stressed out, too, because there's parts where that album kind of fell apart and he had to rejoin, you know, kind of, like, restart it. Uh, yeah, the you creative, know. creative process and all its messiness, absolutely. That would be that would be really pretty cool. So, well, again, uh, Micah, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the Internet? Sure. Um, you can find me at ucmo.edu under the history department and also look for me on Amazon. Uh, my book, Friends of Freedom, is coming out in paperback later this month. And The People's Revolution of 1789 will be released sometime next year. All right. Very cool. What's Friends of Freedom about? It's about the interconnected rise of social movements. So it looks at how the Sons of Liberty, back before the American Revolution, helped create a new model of social organizing that went on to inspire things like the um, rise of British parliamentary reform, Irish nationalism, international abolitionism, the Jacobins, Haitian revolutionaries, and ends with the rise of the American Democratic Party. Wow. So, you know, light reading. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> wow that sounds uh pretty heady stuff man so all right well very cool well, again thank you so much for coming on i really uh, appreciate it and thank you all for listening you can find this show on twitter at pod underscore dylan also over on blue sky 
under Pod Dylan. And if you want to find back episodes or you want to subscribe to this show, this is the uh, free episode for everybody this week, but uh, you really would help Pod Dylan if you can subscribe and uh, you get all the uh, bonus content and all the uh, extended episodes on the alternate weeks. You can do that over on Apple or on fmpods.com. So uh, that's going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later. Bye. Earlier uh, today, Amnesty International announced a worldwide tour to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights. The Declaration of Human Rights is a document that was signed by every government in the world 40 years ago, recognizing the existence of certain inalienable human rights for everyone, regardless of your race, your color, your sex, your religion, your political opinion, or the type of government that you're living under. So, I'd like to get dedicate this next song to the people of Amnesty International and their idea. And so when we come to your town, come on out, support the tour, support human rights for everyone now, and let freedom ring. <laughs>